Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book By Searching by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF. And we are on Chapter 4, My Year in Arabia. On graduating in May of 1922 at 20 years of age, I needed only five months of normal school to qualify for a teacher certificate. My ambition was to be a dean of women and to teach English in some university. But I was so young and inexperienced in teaching that I first had to accept an elementary grade school assignment. I could have taken an upcountry high school appointment, but Mother would not hear of it. She insisted that I teach in a city school. Because of my inexperience, I had to accept a position as a teacher of the third grade at Cecil Road School in Vancouver. In the meantime, my family had moved. My father was a retinologist to Dr. Ernest Hall of Victoria, B.C. Mother sold our Vancouver home and purchased a chicken ranch just outside of Victoria. This ranch was to be for my brother, who had been a soldier in World War I, and for whom employment must be found. He thought he would like a ranch life. So in February of 1923, I found myself a school morm in Vancouver and needing to find a boarding house. For the first time in my life, I would not live at home, but would be on my own, receiving a monthly salary for which I need account to no one. The idea was distinctly pleasing, but where would I board? Somehow I ran into the mother of a girl with whom I'd gone to elementary school eight years before. They were a Scottish family, and the mother especially was a very superior person. Mrs. McMillan was a thinker and was inbred with philosophy and had fallen in with the idea that it was wrong to spank a child. I have often wondered if this wasn't the reason her children did more as they liked than as she liked. The two youngest would not continue school, so had to take employment below their family cultural level. By the time I graduated, Mrs. McMillan was so reduced in circumstances that she was trying to run a boarding house. She asked if I would come to her. She was apologetic, for she had lost her best furniture and could not provide anything as comfortable as I had been accustomed to. But she was very clean, an excellent cook, and her house was within walking distance of my school. Mother knew her and felt at ease that I should be with Mrs. McMillan, who was as loving and kind to me as if I were her own child. So I found myself in this house, the only Christian. The two daughters were both engaged to sailors, and the youngest child, a son, was a policeman with a wife and a small baby. The policeman's brother-in-law, whom we call Laurie, attended normal school, hoping to become a schoolteacher. As he was not yet earning, he paid a minimum rate of board, if anything. It was the household among whom I became the ninth. After graduation, my particular cliques scattered. Many went to other universities for further degrees. Some taught school, but went up country where they could get a high school positions. In no time at all, I seemed alone and living in a different world. The young people of my boarding house were very nice to me, but all for life's pleasures. I did not care to join them. We had little in common but our boarding house. Surrounded with young laughter and noise, I was as lone as if I'd been in the deserts of Arabia. For a year and a half, God shut me up in that loneliness, so that I've always called it my year in Arabia. A young fellow we'll call Mac had begun to ask me out. He was still studying and invited me to the various big dances of the university from time to time. But as he did not live in Vancouver, our dates were not frequent. I had begun to attend evening lectures at the Vancouver Bible School, but it was just beginning, and I do not remember meeting other Christian young people. I was lonely. F.B. Meyer in Abraham points out that this is one of the planned training schools of God. One symptom of being on that path is loneliness. He continues, Nothing strengthens us so much as isolation and transplantation. 
under the wholesome demand his soul will put forth all her native vigor it may not be necessary for us to withdraw from home or friends but we shall have to withdraw our heart's deepest dependence upon all earthly props and supports if ever are we to learn what it is to trust simply and absolutely on the eternal god for one thing i found it hard to keep my prayer times the others in the house played cards and danced or had what they called a good time until long past midnight i could not pray with those noises in my ears to get up early to pray was not the answer for once i was up my mind went rushing on to my school teaching which i was finding difficult at last i hit on the plan of asking the lord to wake me up at two o'clock in the morning after the house had settled to quiet when i would arise for an hour's prayer and bible study this worked wonders always a sleepyhead it was wonderful for me to be awakened each morning as i was in the quiet of that still hour christ became so real to me that i often felt i could have touched him if i had just put out my hand i was learning what dr a w tozer calls the awareness of his presence it satisfied me as nothing on earth had ever done and filled me with the joy of communion that is inexpressible in this arabia i learned fellowship with christ a living person to person fellowship which from then on became dearer than anything else in life to me the acute sense of his presence was not given during the first few months i was at the macmillan boarding house my head was still in the misty flats and my feet were too entangled with the world how i got lifted out into a clear spiritual atmosphere is a story in itself and so i give it here it began with an angry disappointment i must first explain that i was not happy teaching third grade eight-year-olds the children in my class fascinated me it was my first real connection with children for i was the baby of our family and we had early moved away from where small cousins lived i was totally inexperienced with children thought them the cutest things even their little button noses fascinated me needless to say i had discipline problems the little cherub soon found out that their teacher was a softy and she was given daily samples of unexpected naughty things a cherub can think of even without ever losing their angelic smiles then the subject i taught were elementary spelling arithmetic tables simple nature studies and physical drill eight hours each day one's delightful mental life must be tied down to such boredom i have often thought that if i had been allowed to teach high school english i would never have become a missionary and i would have loved that now i hated teaching i found the discipline so perplexing that i was afraid i was going to be a failure and become thoroughly alarmed this was going to be my life work i decided i must study teaching and signed up for a teachers convention in seattle during was it easter holidays i've forgotten i had a friend in seattle who had corresponded with me since grade school which we had attended together the general wolf school in south vancouver i had not seen donald for years but when i wrote that i was coming to the convention i got a letter right back saying i could stay at his house he would be at the boat to meet me and so it was arranged i was just about to leave for the seattle boat when i was handed a telegram it read have arranged for you to stay at wapple seattle love daddy was i annoyed daddy how perfectly mean of you i muttered to myself oh when will you and mother stop interfering with my plans and realize that i'm grown up the wapples who are they dim memory finally produced vague outlines oh religious friends of my dad's yes i remember now so that's dad's idea wants to have them talk to me about my soul eh well they won't find a porcupine more receptive i'm just not going to be bossed around like this i'll warn them that i've made other plans 
I glanced at the clock, showed me that I had no time to send a telegram if I were to catch the ship. Thoroughly provoked, I went aboard my cabin. By morning, we would be in Seattle. Don was there all right, and I explained my predicament. He was not put out. Well, just sleep there, he suggested. I can take you around from there. And so it was decided. I don't remember anything about the convention. I remember a nice supper with Don afterwards and an evening of fun, a dance perhaps. I did not realize how late the hour was until we approached the Whipple house and found it in darkness. No, there was a dim light in the back. The doorbell rang, produced other lights, and the door was opened by Mrs. Otis Whipple herself. Don was introduced and invited in, but he declined and said goodbye, and I found myself sitting in the room alone with my hostess. I did not know the kind of person I was looking for, but it certainly was not the kind I met. Motherly plumpness, a cheery voice, southern warm hospitality, and a culture which were what greeted me. Culture is a form of beauty, the beauty of a trained mind and heart, trained to think of other person's feelings. Beauty of any kind has always had power over me, and I was drawn to her immediately. Instinctively, I knew she was not one to barge into my inner sanctum without an invitation. As yet, I did not know that there were other ways of soul winning. God and my soul were never mentioned. Just a charming talk about my home and their old friendship with my father, of a girl, Tony Black, to whom I was supposed to bear striking likeness. She spoke of a summer conference at a place called Furs, and her husband's sister, a missionary in China, recently widowed, who was to be at the Furs this summer of 1923. More and more I relaxed, and better and better I liked her. When I was finally shown to my room, my porcupine quills were all laid safely fat. The next day was Sunday. I had resolved to bend to the decorum enough to go to the church in the morning. Then I meant to calm the rest of the day to do what I liked. I had a friend named Mamie in the city and had an appointment to spend the afternoon with her. I wondered idly at the fact that Mrs. Whipple had not yet made any effort to get alone with me and talk religiously. Little did I dream the truth, which she told me only years later. That first night after we had all gone to bed, she could not sleep for the burden of me. At last she got up and fell on her knees, asking God the cause. For more than an hour she battled in prayer, that whatever the reason he had sent me to them, it might be fulfilled before I left. Not before she felt she had prayed through did she go back to bed. Having committed the matter to the Lord, she did not get anxious as to how he would accomplish it. She did not rush the matters, which in my case would have been the end of her possibly influencing me. One of her favorite sayings was, Flexible in the hands of the Spirit. She truly lived it. The afternoon visit with Mamie was very pleasant. I had always loved her, until she asked me an unsettling question. Isabel, do you like school teaching? Are you enjoying your work? Oh, Mamie, I groaned in reply. I'm not happy at all. All my life I've planned to teach, and now I've graduated and am at it. I feel like a misfit. I just hate it. If only I had a high school position, I'm sure it would be different. I'm still sure I would enjoy teaching literature, but I'm only 21, you know, and so could not expect to get right into the city high school without any teaching experience. It's so inane, teaching, spelling, and arithmetic. I just don't. Isabel, I know what you need, struck Mimi earnestly. You need to see a phrenologist and have your head read. He'll tell you what you're fitted for, and it just so happens that a very excellent phrenologist is in town, Dr. X. He's a friend of ours and coming to supper with us tonight. His charges are very high, but as a friend of ours, I'm sure he would do it for you for nothing. But you would have to come tonight because he's leaving tomorrow. Oh, Mamie, I cried, how wonderful. There's only one snack. 
I'm staying with religious people and they might be offended at a guest in their house going to see a phrenologist on Sunday. You know how particular some people are about keeping the Sabbath. Oh, if they will only consent. My host is really a dear and I just couldn't offend her. But I tell you, I'll go right back and ask her. If she says yes, I'll phone you and you make the appointment for me. Oh, it'd be grand to be happy in one's work. It would be wonderful to know what one would be fitted for in life. Well, Dr. X will know. I'm sure of that. All right. Goodbye. I'll be looking for that phone call. We parted and I returned to the Whipple's house with a beating heart. Was I about to lose the opportunity of my life because of the old-fashioned religious scruples? Arriving back earlier than I expected, I met Mrs. Whipple in the hall and went right straight to the point. Mrs. Whipple, I'd like to ask you a question, I said. Would you object to my going to a phrenologist tonight to have my head read? I've not been very happy in my work and... Well, now, dear, she said in her cheerfully comfortable way, let's go upstairs and discuss it. I'm not quite sure I understand all that's involved. Here is Miss Coslin waylaying another guest who is crossing the hall at the moment. Miss Coslin is a schoolteacher herself, and maybe she can help you. Take her to the little front bedroom, Margaret, and I'll be there in a moment. I did not learn until many years later why she delayed in coming. She ran for prayer help. Her young high school daughter, Lois, was in the back of the house with two friends, all of them in their teens. It's interesting now to look back at those three little maidens who were urged on their knees downstairs to intercede for the right direction of the phrenologist seeking me upstairs. Lois later became Mrs. Nathan Walton of China Inland Missions. Evelyn Watson became her sister-in-law, Mrs. Aiden Wopel, while the third young girl, Doris Coffin, became Mrs. Willard Aldrich, author of the well-known column in Moody Monthly, Out of the Mixing Bowl. But at this moment, the three teenagers were only told, Isabel has come to a crisis in her life. Pray her through while I go upstairs and deal with her. So down on their knees, they went in prayer. Upstairs, Mrs. Whipple said to me, Now, dear, tell us everything from the beginning so we will understand. The floodgates were unlocked and out poured the story of my school teaching troubles and disappointments. I spoke freely because I felt an atmosphere of loving sympathy and sensed a poise about these two women which seemed to say that their lives were satisfying. I unfold this wonderful opportunity of having my head read by a skilled phrenologist and the supposed snag. It was Sunday. With beating heart, I looked up into that kind, wise, loving face and said, Would you object to me going on Sunday? No tremor of horror or shock crossed her face but she had a look of deep thoughtfulness as if she were weighing the matter carefully. Then came her answer. Isabel, dear, I don't think the matter of its being Sunday is the important thing. It's like this. God has a plan for your life. The Bible says that he has created us to good works and a foreordained that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. That means he has foreordained a useful life for you, and he does so for each of his creatures. The point, as I see it, is to find out God's plan for your life and then follow it. If it is his will to reveal that plan through a phonologist, going on Sunday would do no harm. But if it's not his will to reveal his plan through a phonologist, going any day of the week would be wrong. I was struck with the common sense and the logic of her words and thrilled through and through to hear that God had a plan for my life. Daughter of an elder in the church, granddaughter of a Presbyterian minister, I do not remember anyone ever telling me that before. I'd always thought God was a kindly, fatherly being, way off in heaven somewhere. We could call upon him in trouble, but for the rest of the time, it was up to us to map out our own lives in good, honest work. Then we could ask his blessing and help from time to time. 
that God was so minutely interested in me that he would take the trouble to plan a career for me, plan it without my asking. The tender intimacy of a love that could do that touched me to the breaking point. Hardly able to control my voice, I asked, well, how are we to find out his plan for us? By this time, I was kneeling at the bed on which Miss Coslin sat and Mrs. Whipple in the chair beside me. She reached for her Bible and opened it in front of me, saying, Isabel, I've always found his will through his word, this book. His plan for us will always be in accordance with the scriptures. And with me, it is usually from the Bible itself that I get my leading. At that moment, the telephone rang and Mrs. Whipple was called. I do not remember what dear Miss Coslin had said, for I was thinking, God's plan for my life is in that book. Impulsively, I pulled it towards me. It fell shut, and I reopened it at the random with my eyes on Miss Coslin. Inwardly, I was wondering what the Bible had to say about phonology. When my eyes happened to fall on the open page, and there, unconsciously, my left hand lay with a forefinger pointing at a verse. and It read, Keep thee far from the false matter. Exodus 23.7 It was as if a voice had spoken to me. I was so startled at the directness of the answer to my inward question that my distressed heart collapsed with relief. I was weeping with Mrs. Whipple re-entered the room, weeping terribly, simply rent with sobs. It's all right, Isabel, she tried to say. He'll lead you. Oh, he has, I cried. Look at this verse, pointed to keep thee far from a false matter. She, too, marveled at such a quick, thoroughly complete answer. The piled-up heartaches of a whole year and a half of searching after God had reached a climax. I could only sob until exhausted. Tenderly and lovingly, the two ladies ministered to me. Dear Mrs. Whipple never tried to pry. The prophecy of a human soul was respected by her, and that was another reason we all loved and trusted her so much. I do not remember anything more of that visit except Mrs. Whipple told me again about the FERS Bible Conference and urged me to attend that July as her guest. I was not interested. I still shrank from the evangelistic meeting with their work-up emotion and high-pressured methods. I did not intend to be a high-pressured into anything. Thank you, Mrs. Whipple, I said, but I have already signed up to attend teacher's summer school in Victoria. Until God leads differently, I must earn my living and can only do it by teaching. And so we parted. Now the Lord wished to direct my thoughts into a channel where they would never have run of themselves. My life was about to turn a new corner. Strange to say, it all hinged at first upon a pair of shoes. But that is the subject of the next chapter. Next time will be Chapter 5, A Pair of Shoes and the Furs Conference. I love you. I'm praying for you. And it's bye-bye for now.